0: Hello, and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy, and in today's episode, in honor of National Infertility Awareness Week, I sit down with Rachel Rabinor. Rachel is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in working with women who have been impacted by infertility and pregnancy loss. Rachel shares with us her origin story, so what brought her to this work, and then we jump in and explore things like, why is there so much silencing and isolation around this particular type of loss? What is the relationship between pregnancy loss, grief, depression, anxiety, and trauma? We both share our own experiences of pregnancy loss we talk about how there can be so much diversity in the experience of pregnancy loss and how sometimes that can lead us to actually not connecting with each other. We also explore how loved ones can offer support. What are some things that you can say and do if you know somebody and you love somebody who's been impacted by a pregnancy loss? What are some things maybe not to say and why? I hope that you find a lot of value in this episode. I sure did let's go ahead and jump on in right now. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, licensed marriage and family therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. So I'm always really interested in origin stories and how mm-hmm. people came to do the great work that they're doing so mm-hmm. do you mind sharing a little bit of what brought you to becoming an LCSW mm-hmm. and in doing your work with women who are facing infertility and have experienced pregnancy loss I'd love to um so I guess after college
1: so in college I, I studied Uh, Cultural Anthropology and Latin American Studies and I did a lot of traveling in Latin America and I considered getting a PhD in Applied Anthropology and at some point I realized that um, studying people was really interesting to me in culture, but I really gravitated towards the interpersonal interactions. And that, by going to social work school, I would have that opportunity to interact with people from different cultures, um, use my spanish and um, and also serve a higher in my opinion it was it was a, a greater good for an individual um, and also from a societal context, um, when I went to social work school i had a very bleeding heart mentality that I wanted to
0: save the world
1: you're probably um, not
0: the only social worker no. in the world I think that it may be like a prerequisite to the bleeding heart it, it most certainly
1: is in fact I really didn't know that I wanted to have a clinical practice at all mm-hmm. um I am the daughter of a psych of a psychologist and I actually thought I'd kind of run the other way um and so after traveling i was in guatemala at some point after graduate, after college and i was living with a family um, and there was a 15, 15 or 18 year old daughter who oh she was 18 at the time and she had a 3 year old son who was disabled and she carried him around on her back in a piece of fabric and I learned through living with this family that she had conceived this child um, out of wedlock and um, tried to abort him by taking different pills and concoctions, and it wasn't successful. And so the story was that he was born disabled, unable to walk or talk or um, eat, feed himself on his own. And that really stuck with me. Um, you know, I learned more about the um, political, religious context that exists in um, Guatemala, that there wasn't a lot of access to reproductive health care. And when I came back to the United States, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. I actually thought I was going to wait tables some more and make some more money to go to teach English in Taiwan. but. The idea of actually doing that wasn't that appealing, the idea of of waiting tables, and I wanted a more meaningful job. And so I wound up taking a job at a domestic violence agency, and that segued into me going to graduate school for social work. Um, And when I graduated, this was still really a deep seed inside of me, and I wanted to work for Planned Parenthood International in the Western Hemispheres program. This was hard to believe, the days before you really used the internet to get a job. And so I was calling around to any organization, I was living in New York City, any organization who worked with around pregnancy um, and in Latin America. So literally calling and leaving voicemails. And I heard back from this after-school program, which was just on my list because they were a pregnancy prevention after-school program. And that I landed this job, which, after about four months, I think I just resigned to getting a job, and that was within the larger scope <clears throat> excuse me, larger scope of maternal mental health or um, pregnancy prevention. I continued working in prevention work when I moved to San Diego, I uh, got a job working for a company called or an organization called Outdoor Outreach, where I took at-risk youth into the outdoors. So this was still a prevention program, um, helping to keep kids away from drugs, alcohol, violence, um, and of course, pregnancy. Um, And I moved it very quickly. It was a small organization. I was the first full-time employee. So I uh, rose pretty quickly. But I moved away from the direct uh, one-on-one contact with, with kids and with clients. So I started looking around, and I found that San Diego Unified offers or has a program for pregnant and parenting teens and I just kept my eye on these opportunities. They would see them pop up um, and eventually I took the plunge and I left that organization and went to work for this uh, department for SANDAP, it's called, San Diego Adolescent Pregnancy and Parenting Program. So while I was working at SANDAP, for short, um, I had my first child. Um, the work was powerful before having my own child, seeing these young teens, um, sometimes as young as 11 or 12 years old, uh, becoming mothers. I, I really, obviously I was drawn to this from the get-go, um, but it was it was really powerful work. And then I became a mother, and I was blown away even more uh, just how challenging it could be. Um, and when my son was 15 months old I became pregnant unexpectedly and then I miscarried and I went on to have uh, two additional pregnancy losses and with so this was all within one year within approximately 12 months I had three pregnancy losses and my father was also diagnosed with a terminal illness and passed away so the combination of these losses um, obviously, it was incredibly intense, and um, I wound up taking a leave for my job at, at Sandap because I really recognized at some point, it got to a point where I thought, this is just too much. People asked me all along the way, I not it a lot to be dealing with what you're going through and working with these teen, teen um, parents who were just able to conceive so easily, and Truly, I never felt, for me, that was not a trigger, because
0: Mm.
1: their stories were very unique, and their struggles were very unique to mine. But what I did recognize was was weighing on me was some of their history of trauma and the lack of support I had as a clinician at that job. Uh, We were just undergoing a lot of changes in the department, and I was without a supervisor for a period of time so um, I did I took a leave Um, initially it was three months I extended it another three months Um, and I I really needed that space uh, to figure out what was going on um, emotionally and physically because my doctor sadly didn't really acknowledge any grave issue until I had a third loss Um, And then it was my therapist who recommended that I see um, a particular doctor. So when I did go on to have a child, um, and I took more time with her, and when I was ready to begin my private practice, so somewhere along the way, to come back to your question, (laughs) yeah. Uh, I'd always known that I wanted to have a private practice. Uh, I didn't have any idea what the specialty would be early on. Um, But once I started working at stand-up, I knew that I wanted to work with mothers. And then once I experienced my own losses and infertility, uh, that made natural sense to Mm -hmm. me to incorporate that. And of course, I, I had to do my own healing before I could take that on to be part of my professional, um, role, but, um, that's sort of how I evolved into Mm. being, um, you know, specializing in reproductive and maternal mental health.
0: Thank you for sharing, for sharing your story. There, there there was a question I had in, um, when you were sharing, because I, from my, from my own experiences, but also um, the experiences that I witness with moms that I work with, it can be really hard to take that space of to take that space that you eventually mm-hmm. took, right? And it, it sounds yeah. like it took a while to get to the place yes. of taking that <clears throat> space. Why do you think that it? Why is it so hard mm-hmm. for for women <clears throat> who experience pregnancy loss to take that space for healing?
1: it's a really good question I think our culture tells us that we can be a super mom, that we can can and there's a should somewhere embedded in there that we should be able to handle everything everything that's thrown at us so unfortunately I think that's kind of the root um
0: so there's these these belief systems that we should be able to move on quickly, or and also, and I love to hear your thoughts on this. That that this isn't there wasn't there wasn't a there wasn't a, a, there wasn't a baby. There wasn't mm-hmm. a person, right? <clears throat> right. It was, and so that loss can be minimized in those ways, right? that disenfranchised grief right it's an invisible loss it's an invisible loss right yeah and so part of what comes what can come with an invisible loss like this is the silencing right Mm -hmm. and so we don't we don't talk about it or people don't ask about it right um and so would you connect that silencing effect that can happen in with the difficulty it is to take that space because people aren't asking, it isn't being acknowledged or we're not talking about it to get support around it I think
1: the silence around, there is not much of a conversation around coping with these invisible losses um, I think I was fairly silent about it in my work space so, identifying what that need was, or expressing a need to take time, was um, was a challenge. When my father passed away, I was it was evident, right? A person had passed, and I took bereavement leave, um, but the the cumulative impact, I think, also of the recurrent losses, it was... Um, it grew. The the struggle grew. Um, the unknown, it became more apparent. I think that in my own head, I thought I could conceive again and move on. And when that didn't happen so easily, It just got harder. The unknown, not yeah. knowing, not knowing the future. I couldn't foretell the future. Surprisingly,
0: <laughs> you can't know. Yeah, and one of the pieces in in these experiences that well, so there's so much that's hard. But one right. of the pieces is is the control, right? And right. I know I've I wor- I've worked with a lot of women who will come in and, and share. This, uh, their story of I've been able to I'm I'm a person that can make things happen mm-hmm. I'm a manifester sure. if I, I can find the things that I have control over have agency and mm-hmm. accomplish and the reason in which pregnancy loss just sweeps them off their feet in this way that is so excruciatingly painful is because this is something I can't I can't control and 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 or, then there's a follow-up of, well, or can I control this? Mm-hmm. And should I have been able to control this? And then that's a slippery slope into right. experiences, right, of shame. Or is my body broken? Or did I do something? And society, will you'll hear all around
1: you, right? Just relax and it will happen. Whoa. Whether it's loss or infertility, you're too stressed. You need to de-stress. So again, that's and so now the you're blame. stressed about your stress, mm-hmm.
0: and, and, right. and there's that blame component, the blame, right. the yeah.
1: blame, and then the then the guilt, and then the shame, right? Mm. I'm defective somehow. I can't even de-stress. Mm. I can't even be less stressed enough, or I can't even de-stress enough so that I can carry a baby. Mm. So yeah, I, absolutely, everything you said.
0: So the the grief. The grief that can come from this invisible loss Mm -hmm. right there are times in which that can slip we've talked about can slip into shame Mm -hmm. there are times when it can slip into depression Mm -hmm. in your in your work and in your experience Mm -hmm. how how are those different how Mm -hmm. are grief and depression different and can you experience postpartum like do we call it postpartum depression when it follows a pregnancy loss Good questions. <clears throat> Great questions. Um, I think there's a
1: growing awareness that um, depression after a pregnancy loss, yes, can be c- considered postpartum depression, but, or, and I also often have this conversation with clients of mine who are struggling from some kind of postpartum distress when, when they've had a, a live birth, that it doesn't actually matter what we call it. Um, Mm. What's most important is that we really treat the symptoms and help decrease um, the suffering. So absolutely, we can call it postpartum depression. Um, We can call it depression. And there's grief, right? So I think of grief as something that may continue for a, a longer period of time. Um, and Or depression, ideally, is treated, but that doesn't necessarily take away someone's grief. Mm. So um, the acute symptoms of loss, is that depression? Well, there's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which of course you're familiar with, um, but some of your listeners may not know, but there's um, this manual that we use that insurance requires therapists to use to diagnose clients. Um, and so there's a series of different uh, symptoms that one must experience for two weeks or longer. And they actually just removed bereavement from the DSM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, these are words, right? These are this is semantics. I think it's really important that people are paying attention to how they feel and uh, acknowledging their loss and seeking the support that they may need, regardless of whether mm. we're calling it depression or not.
0: And in what I'm hearing you say is that when you're when you're sitting with your clients, you're much more interested in how they're making meaning of it and mm-hmm. the language that they're using. Absolutely, absolutely. What about what about trauma? I know mm-hmm. that you are you also do a lot of trauma work. Sure. And um, myself, I've referred clients to you that have experienced trauma for EMDR. Mm-hmm. And If anyone listening doesn't know what EMDR is, I've got, there's an episode coming up where we're gonna demystify EMDR, um, but it's a trauma, an evidence based trauma supportive therapy. And I know this is a big question, so (laughs) let's let's just stumble around the question with each other, Rachel. But trauma and pregnancy loss, and the different ways in which trauma can show up within the experience of pregnancy Mm -hmm. loss. Is it different from other traumas? Are there unique factors to that? Mm. Um, what's the impact of trauma that you've seen? I think most people are surprised that trauma
1: shows up is through symptoms like anxiety and depression. They come in with those symptoms, right? Because those are the kind of tangibles that they can feel and they don't necessarily acknowledge or recognize that what they've been through is traumatic, and so there's a lot of education that happens around you know what is what is trauma and what is a traumatic experience because two people can experience the same thing, and one has a um, a traumatic experience a traumatic response or trauma response, and the other one does not and There are so many factors that contribute to um so many protective factors and so many risk factors and environmental factors for each individual that um, plays into their response to a, situa- a situation.
0: Are there are there indicators of, or things or symptoms or things that can show up where somebody maybe can understand, well, maybe this is, maybe there has been some trauma here, mm. right? And so some indicators that they may notice that could then be sort of, could show them that maybe they need more support in this area.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, when you've had a really scary life experience, right? And so um, one of the definitions of of trauma is around uh, a fear of death or the witnessing of death, whether of uh, someone else or, excuse me, also of a very serious injury, So whether it's, you know, in combat witnessing or um, the death of somebody or an accident or um, in your own childbirth, fearing that your child may die or that you may die. Um, So it doesn't have to actually happen, the death, but just that fear of that
0: happening. I'm doing my own EMDR right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that... One of the reasons I chose to do the EMDR is because our 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 pet, our dog, mm. got attacked, and it was a pretty traumatic, horrible experience. Mm. And I was easily able to say that was a trauma. Yes. And I would talk about it, and I would feel flooded, and it was sort of lingering. Mm-hmm. And through the EMDR on for my on myself for myself, it was so wild for me to experience. How in the work that memory was connected to my own m- pregnancy loss, mm. and how there were certain pieces and factors of both of those experiences that connected them to each other. Yeah, and 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 part of those pieces were around death and mortality, mm-hmm. and and not just of not just related to my pet who who didn't die, but got very close to it and not just around the pregnancy loss but around but for myself and for other people in my life that I Mm. love who were involved in these two experiences Mm. and I don't know it's just it's been a bewildering experience for me to see and a powerfully healing experience for me to see how these things are connected in our brains Mm -hmm. and and how our brains make sense of these experiences and how sometimes we can get really stuck in in that trauma and we don't even sometimes realize it. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so those are some of the what you talked about, that flooding. Um, that's one of the things
1: that I hear a lot from women that I see that they're not feeling like they can move on. You know, even sometimes it's been a a year that yeah. they since they've had a loss and they're just not sure whether they want to conceive again or yeah. um just where they are in that journey.
0: Yeah.
1: But that flooding, right? Seeing things in your current life, really common for women who've experienced a loss is um, seeing other people pregnant or pregnancy announcements on Facebook or friends or baby showers. These can all be triggers. And so when the emotion is still so raw um, and it's been some time, if you feel like, wow, I'm surprised I'm still feeling this way, those are those are signs, right? Mm. Um, Nightmares, flashbacks, Mm. those are signs also. Those are some of the symptoms. The anxiety, right? High high startle response, you know, hypervigilance, those are uh, are symptoms as well. But they can be confusing to somebody who just thinks, wow, I'm just really anxious these days. They don't associate Mm. it necessarily with the origin or when it started,
0: Most oftentimes when somebody experiences a pregnancy loss, they're they're not living in isolation. There's Mm -hmm. other people around them, potentially a partner, Mm -hmm. or family, or other support people. How can support people support somebody who is who has experienced a pregnancy loss? You know, especially in the context of the silencing and the not yeah. taking the space piece that we've already sort of talked about. Yeah. You know,
1: there, there's no one way, of course. And each woman experiences a loss in a different way, right? Somebody could have a, an early loss that is very traumatic and somebody else that may not be very significant. So um, I think the most important way is to really ask. Mm. You know,
0: how are you doing, right? So in the asking, you're starting the conversation and creating the space. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so you want to create
1: that space. You want to make sure that they know that you're available, right? Mm -hmm. I'm available now to talk. I'm available in the future to talk. So being present is what I think of as one of the most important things in that relationship, Um, And that's equally as important for her partner, not just for the the woman who's experienced the loss. Um, I think, you know, showing different acts of love, right? What that may mean for you or what you know of that person, what would resonate with them. Mm. If that person really loves, you know, popcorn and movies, then Mm. see if you can schedule a time to watch a movie together, Um, or if they love getting their nails done, right, just carving out that time. It can be things like bringing food, right? I mean, it depends what stage we're talking about, you know, if it's immediate or even in the weeks or months afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that women and couples go through when they've experienced a loss is what happens after those first few months, when life resumes for most
0: people um, and people maybe stop asking if they were asking they right. may they may not be asking anymore if they were they may right
1: they might not be asking or um, maybe they haven't seen you in since it happened and they think I shouldn't ask because I shouldn't bring it up that
0: would make you mm. upset right but really of course you're still thinking about it yeah I remember after, after our pregnancy loss, in in the weeks that followed, that there was sort of a symbol of the pregnancy loss mm-hmm. that that came up for that came up for me. Um, in and I'm going to connect this to what you just shared. So after the pregnancy loss, I was we were watching Sesame Street. I think and mm-hmm. my daughter and in this episode of Sesame Street, Elmo like was playing with a butterfly and the butterfly flew away and Mm -hmm. Elmo got really upset that the butterfly flew away Mm -hmm. and my daughter was my daughter who was I believe two at the time was watching this and she got super upset about this and Mm -hmm. she just kept saying where did the butterfly go where did it go and she was crying and I remember just being really surprised by her reaction (laughs) and so I went to go soothe her and she just was she was looking up at me and she was like where did it go and this was like a week or two after um, after we had discovered that the, that we had lost the baby and i had a dnc following mm-hmm. that and i was sitting there with her soothing her and then something just shifted for me where Because she she knew that I I was pregnant, and she had been asking. Mm -hmm. She was at the appointment, actually, um, Mm -hmm. where we discovered that the heartbeat had stopped. And one of the trauma memories for me around this Mm -hmm. was that she kept asking, where's the heartbeat, where's the heartbeat? And I hadn't really grieved with her because Mm -hmm. I wanted to protect her from it. Sure. And in this moment, she's crying about where'd the butterfly go. And something just shifted for me where, like that that vulnerability that I had been wanting to protect her from like sort Mm -hmm. of opened up and I was crying with her and Mm -hmm. I was just like I don't know the butterfly I don't I miss the butterfly too (laughs) you know I'm really sad about the butterfly also and through that a a butterfly became a symbol like for Mm -hmm. me and it um a really important symbol and I I had shared that symbol with a couple of close people Mm -hmm. and now with a lot more people and me sharing it right now (laughs) because I feel I feel good now and sharing that more publicly but at that time it was a really precious protected symbol but I shared it with a couple of people and including one person was my cousin and anytime that we would see a butterfly if we were with each other or you know there were a couple small gifts that she gave me that were representative of a butterfly. Mm. She would look at me if we saw a butterfly and it was like this like we knew with each other. It was a symbol yeah. and like this remembering and we were honoring it with each other. And her doing that was really really powerful. Yeah. And one of the most honestly one of the most supportive ways in which she could have showed up for me and mm. just and that was her act of love. You know, yeah. um, and it's one that continues. That's
1: so special.
0: Um, yeah, um, and it's such an intimate relationship. It sounds mm-hmm. like that um,
1: that you were able to share that story, that really mm-hmm. vulnerable moment you had with your daughter, where you
0: mm-hmm.
1: you yeah. mourned with her,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then to share that with with your cousin mm-hmm. that allowed her to come and continually support you and yeah. to be there and be. Part of your
0: journey, yeah. I mean, it was, um, and there, there were, there were other ways in which people, which people showed up, but there was also this. You know, at some point, people did stop asking about it, mm-hmm. and and then once I became pregnant again, mm. sort of this, I think, an assumption of okay, so now, <laughs> now, now it's okay because mm. now, now you're getting the baby. That you and that, you know, I think, you know, right after the loss, when people would say things like, "Cause my next question to, to you is going to be what what not to say." Yeah, <laughs> like one of the things that people would say would be, you know, everything happens for a reason. Right, and that was really not useful. Right. Um, so, what are some of the things that people shouldn't be saying? or what they can be saying right if we're taking these things Mm -hmm. away what can we replace Mm -hmm. that with
1: that's great because there are a lot of platitudes that people say that
0: um are well-intentioned right they are they They want to make it better or to help you see the other side of it or to they're maybe maybe they're trying to bring that meaning to it right that like there's going to be something that comes from this but I wasn't ready for that. Right. that. That was not the meaning I was right. in a place right. to receive. Right. <laughs> I agree that there are people
1: who are truly well-intentioned. And I also believe that there are some people who are so confused and overwhelmed by the the, the lack of reasons, right? We don't know why why pregnancy loss happens. And so... They want to know themselves, and they're confused and overwhelmed, and so they offer a platitude that is truly unhelpful because they're uncomfortable, mm. and it makes them feel better that they're offering something, they're saying something. But, um, you know, one thing that I can imagine, I, I that I heard—I don't know if you heard this since I know you had a child as well—was you know, at least you have a child,
0: yeah, right. Mm.
1: So, you know, that that would essentially negates the fact that you want to grow your family right that's
0: that's not um and doesn't honor that i had already begun to attach to and envisioned the child that was growing in in my in my body
1: right right it has nothing to do with the first child yes it is wonderful to have a child but that's not um you know at least you know you can get pregnant Uh, that's yeah you know Mm. it's we don't really know um people don't know what's really going on inside of our you know reproductive organs and that's just you know they're not doctors it's not yeah. a place to to voice yeah. that right um and it doesn't comfort right that's not an answer to no. anything um i i heard this because i had um several early losses was at least it was early
0: mm. yeah
1: yeah so you know it, i don't this is where if you have wanted a child, if your your dreams are sowed, right? You have visions of the future, and so it doesn't matter whether that child is, you know, you're, you're six weeks pregnant or 20 weeks pregnant. Uh, um, the impact can be, you know, equal.
0: I really appreciate you bringing up this piece of different stages of pregnancy and mm. ha- and loss that happen in different stages. And I, I actually, I found in my own experience even that... This, so we talked about the silencing effect, that how the silencing effect came into play with with loss based on pregnancy stage, right? So we had heard the heartbeat and then mm-hmm. um, we went back for our 12 week or 13 week, mm-hmm. and that was when we saw the baby hadn't grown and the heartbeat had stopped. Mm-hmm. But I would find that if I was with somebody who had experienced a stillbirth, mm-hmm. I would feel like... My, my loss doesn't compare to that, right. right and so then I wouldn't talk about my experience. Mm-hmm. I would which would keep me silent right but then in that silence, there was no room for potentially connecting with this woman right right with this friend in a deeper way. Yeah. And so I think sometimes because our experiences can be so unique right we we, we have we we have a child already or we don't or yeah. the stage of pregnancy in which the loss happened. Or what's going on in our reproductive organs, and yeah. and what's what's causing the what you know what what led to the loss, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's such a diversity of experiences just in general in motherhood, but I think sometimes for fear of um, comparing our situation to someone else, or feeling like we don't want to make somebody else feel worse, or or ours doesn't compare to that. I don't know. There's so much. Internal dialogue around that—that yes. that I think can lead to the silencing as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah,
1: we don't want to make somebody else. If there's wasn't, if they weren't as far along, or right. if they were, right. it's there's a lot of tiptoeing yeah. around this topic, right? Yeah. How much to share with who, and yeah, um, but yeah, ultimately it leads to silencing when. I, I really I run an infertility support group and one of the things I really try and impress upon the group from the get go is just that everybody's story is different mm. and loss is it's really the the, the common thread mm. that each person is facing and it everyone's experience is different. It, it's not a competition.
0: Mm. Right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Sadly there's enough loss. <laughs> this <There's> is <laughs> not I know. This is not a competition. So it is
0: one of those human experiences Mm -hmm. that we actually all will be touched by, right? Yes. Um, At some point in our lives. Yes. So there's there's the things not to say. Are there are there some things that you would offer up that somebody if they're listening and they they know someone, they care about somebody who's experienced pregnancy loss. Are there things that we can say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you know, things
1: like I'm I'm so sorry. Mm. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, I've been thinking about you. I'm here for you. Mm. I'm here for you now, and I'm here for you in the future. Mm. Yeah. I think letting people know that you're really available Mm. for them to come to. Um,
0: I remember somebody saying something to me um, in, in line with this that they just sort of said, they just sort of honored the fact that they didn't know what to say. I was just gonna say. Uh, that. Were you? Yeah. 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 Like they were yeah. like, I don't know what to say. Yes. I'm just. I'm just so sorry, and I want to be here. That's beautiful, right? It's yeah. acknowledging, right? And that's what holds so many people
1: back is that they don't know what to say because it sucks, right? Yeah. This is just so sad. Somebody's dreams were just pulled out from them.
0: Mm.
1: Loss. I'm. It just is so touches so deeply Um, and the people who really care about you and love you they feel that loss too and so for that reason they don't know what to say they just wanted you to have what you wanted
0: yeah are there any others that you would offer up
1: um i think i think the most important thing is to really just to speak from your heart Mm -hmm. and that even if you say the wrong thing because i know that people then get nervous that they're going to say the wrong thing so maybe it's just better that i say nothing. So to say something and to say it with love, right? Because that tone is going to be heard and it's is more important than the actual content. Because if you say it with love, somebody will look at you, your friend, your loved one will say, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying, right? Mm. Or what exactly did you mean?
0: Mm.
1: But when you try and be funny or... Kind of canned responses that it was meant to be those don't feel as as thoughtful, and mm. as we've talked about, they can actually be hurtful, but yeah. really speaking from your heart, I think that's mm. my last you know not yeah. the words not necessarily mattering yeah. so much, yeah. Yeah. because like you said earlier, the intention right people the majority of people really are coming to support you,, yeah. and they want you to know that they care about you. Mm.
0: Well, Rachel, thank you so much for letting me in and sharing all of your beautiful wisdom and caring support for this community. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you? Um, I can be found
1: on the good old interweb at com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And
0: that's that's it. That's me well thank you rachel so much thank you cassidy you've been listening to holding space podcast i hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode if you did you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air thank you so much for sharing this space with me have a great day